Cool. Um, let, let us bow our heads in prayer just before we go into this morning's word. Father in heaven, we thank you for all that you do for us. We thank you, Lord, that, that you bring us here, Father, and that we're drawn here to church not because of simply an obligation, but because we want to be here, we want to learn from you, we want to encounter you, God, and we want to leave here knowing that, that the Holy Spirit is teaching us and the Holy Spirit is guiding us. I pray, Lord God, that each one of us here encounters your word, Father, personally, and that we leave here knowing that we have heard from the living God. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who gave everything for us. And we thank you, Lord, for giving him for us. Lord, I just pray this morning that we never forget that. In your precious son's name I pray. Amen. I don't know about you, but I, I love a good story. Um, growing up, I remember as a kid, I used to jump into, you know, like my mum's my bed in the morning and she would read me certain stories. I used to love the story of Jonah. Um, I thought it was just remarkable how a man could survive in a fish. Um, and as a kid, it didn't mean much to me other than just simply being a story. Um, but stories are so important. Uh, and they're important because it's a way of conveying a message to people, I suppose, that people can connect with. Um, and whether it's fictional or a true story, if it's, if it's done well, uh, I quite enjoy it. And people's true stories often have a pretty significant effect on me. Uh, I was listening yesterday to a story. I was watching ESPN. I was watching NBA. And there was a story of this little girl who wanted a pair of shoes from an NBA player, Steph Curry. And they didn't make it in girl sizes. And so she sent a letter and... He actually responded and he kind of rectified all, all, all those issues. And this is now a milestone in his kid's life that, you know, a, a star who she idolises has actually taken note of her and now that's something she carries forth with her. Now, stories are powerful and testimonies of people's lives are powerful as well. And I find that people's stories have the power to change other people's lives as well. Now, the most common source of our beliefs come from stories. And I'm not talking just about Christian belief. I'm talking about kids in school. You know, they, they accept what teachers are telling them, the testimonies of the information of what they're given from our families, uh, even through TV. You know, we just take on board what the media are telling us and ultimately take it as pretty much the truth. And also in the past, you know, the way we understand history is also done in many ways like a story. It's even done through historians of that time writing about, about what was going on or even simply finding archaeological finds of whatever, the, of whatever it is to tell the story of that time. During World War I, the way they could reconstruct a lot of what was happening on the battlefield was they had letters from soldiers who were there. And their the letters writing to their loved ones, they talked about their experience and they told their stories through, through letters. Even in criminal proceedings, when uh, the prosecution wants to prosecute someone, one of the things they use is witnesses 
They put people before the judge to tell the story of what they have seen. And generally, they don't just get one because one is not necessarily credible. They get many to testify to the same account. And in a court of law, it can be perceived as truth and used as truth. So the only time to throw away a story of someone's life is if there's real reason to question the authority of the story. Now, people raise a lot of objections to God. One issue in particular is the resurrection of Christ. Why? Because it seems by our standards, secular standards, to be so unreasonable. Someone came back after death? No, no one comes back after death. But this is the very basis of our belief. In Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15, 17, Paul says, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. If the resurrection didn't happen, then the Christian faith would simply have fizzled out. Our faith stands and falls based on this event. Jesus wasn't just simply a good teacher. However, the resurrection marks him as the authority that he called himself to be. And we can know God through that. So how do we testify to this significant event outside of just recalling the Bible? Do we study apologetics? Yeah, we can. But I think we have something more than just academia to witness to this. Now, in 1 Peter 3.15, it says, But in your hearts, sanctify Christ as Lord. Always be ready to make your defence to anyone who demands from you an accounting of the hope that is in you. Now, apologia, defence in Greek, is where we get the word apologetics from. And there are lots of people who defend their position. It doesn't matter what, what that position is, whether you're a Christian or, or any other uh, form of belief. Or even people just in normal circumstances offer a defence for, for what they stand for. But Peter tells us to make a defence for the hope that is in us. And it doesn't always come easy to Christians. Some may think that we need to arm ourselves and study and be taught how to, uh, with arguments, how to, how to squash other people's beliefs. But it becomes a battleground almost. And sometimes we're not prepared for the fallout of what can happen with that. I've listened to so many debates by prominent Christian apologetics and atheists and at the end of the day, what's left is a bunch of academic arguments. However, when Peter is writing this, it's not for us to be prepared necessarily to argue academically, but for the believer to be able to testify why they believe in Jesus and to testify why they have chosen to follow him above all the other religions and worldviews out there. And from my experience, this is not always easy. But it doesn't need to be as complicated as we actually make it. And that's the point I want to get to this morning. Instead of the, the believer feeling disempowered, I want the believer to be empowered. That you can defend your faith no matter where you are in your life or what your standing is in life. And I want to look at the book of Acts. 
and focus on one particular section around Apostle Paul. Now, the book of Acts was written by Luke, the same writer as the Gospel of Luke, and it appears that he writes to the same person he wrote to the Gospel, someone named Theophilus. And there is little information about who Theophilus is. However, Luke writes to him and he talks about this person, Jesus, and he talks about, in the book of Acts, about the church. And the book of Acts is very much seen as a defence of Jesus' workings in his people, the ones who proclaim that he is Lord and was crucified and now alive. There is a very clear message in there about who Jesus is amongst the people and that salvation only comes through him. And this caused a lot of controversy in the time of Acts because from the Israelite perspective, they were the only chosen people of God. And the Jews of their time are now proclaiming a Messiah who doesn't contradict the law, but on the surface it seemed like he did. So the church definitely had a lot of issues at this time. Now, this is the most basic intro to Acts I can give you. But I want to look at a certain section of it. Now, usually when Acts is preached, I've really ever heard the first few chapters. Very rarely do I hear the last chapters preached. Um, and I want to look at Paul's defence whilst he's in, he's, in, he's in prison. Now, in Acts 21, 27, he's in a temple and, and he's seized because of his belief in the salvation through Jesus, which, which apparently contradicted their laws. And he had to be arrested. The ruckus was so bad, just like police would do in our time to instate uh, order, they take him to prison and he's investigated. Now, in chapter 26, he's already been investigated a few times. But we see, as we're going to read through chapter 26, of how Paul gives his defence. The, Rome, the Roman government of the, of the time was Festus, and what he did was he, he heard the case that the Jews put against Paul, and he clearly saw it as not a Roman law issue. He saw it as a religious issue. And so he gets the assistance of King Agrippa, who's, who's a Jew, who is clearly pro-Roman, has close affiliation with, with Festus. And so he calls him to work out how to settle this thing with Paul. So those who have their Bibles or their apps, it should be up there as well, um, we're going to go through chapter 26. So then Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. So Paul motioned with his hand and began his defence. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defence against all the accusations the Jews, and especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me. The Jewish people all know the way I have lived ever since I was a child, from the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time and can testify, if they are willing, that I conform to the strictest sect of our religion, living, living as a Pharisee. And now it, now it is because of my hope in what God has promised our ancestors that I am on trial today. 
This is the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. King Agrippa, it is because of this hope that these Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? I'm just going to stop there. So Paul gives a history of his past. He advises of how he was raised as one of them, as a Jew. So he, he was aware of their customs. He, he adhered to the laws. And he goes on to say that I was not only born into this, I actually took it one step further. I studied, I became a Pharisee. I became one of the teachers of this sect. And he states that he believes in the same hope that the Jews believe in, that was promised to their ancestors. And he finds himself on trial for that same hope. And he, t- he tells the king directly that this is why he's imprisoned. But in verse 8, then he appeals to logic. He says, why is it so hard that God can raise the dead? And I feel this is a very logical question to put forward to people who believe in a supernatural God who they believe can do supernatural things from from the Hebrew Bible, from their Old Testament. God performs miracles. He reveals himself. So why is it so impossible to raise someone from the dead, especially with so many people proclaiming to have witnessed this? So that's how Paul starts his defence. He goes, he looks at his past. And then we continue, chapter 9 to 11. I too was convinced that I I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished. And I tried to force them to blaspheme. So I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. Now Paul even talks about his own doubts of this Jesus. He says, I hunted them. He did this with the permission of his fellow chiefs who, because he wanted to persecute these Christians, they were blaspheming against their belief system. And he put many into prison. He even cast a vote to put people to death. So he was that complicit in the death of Christians. He didn't directly do it, but he definitely wasn't innocent of Christians dying. And he even says, I was so obsessed with persecuting them, I even hunted them down in foreign cities. He's expressing his previous atheist belief of Christianity. And then we go on in, in chapter 12 to 18. And on one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. About noon, King Agrippa, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying in Aramaic, Soul, soul, why do you persecute me? Is it hard for you to kick, up, to kick against the goads? Then I asked, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus. Whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. And now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them. 
to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and place among those and place among those who are sanctified by by faith in me. We get to the crux of Paul's story here. His encounter with the risen Jesus. This is the one who he believed was dead. He believed the witnesses who were causing his trouble amongst his own people. He believed all this to be false. And yet he encounters him. Now some, some may say that Paul had a psychotic episode, but it's easy to explain this away as well because he, 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 did have, he had an entourage with him. He wasn't on his own. And they too witnessed this event in Paul. And we see that his heart is changed. And he's actually commissioned now to speak for what he was speaking against. And in previous acts in, in acts, chapters in Acts, when he goes to, when, when he experiences his conversion, he goes to the apostles who, who, who validate his experience by, by showing him or speaking to him about their experience in Christ. So we continue the story. So chapter 19, sorry, verse 19. So then, King Agrippa, I was, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven, first to those in Damascus, then in those in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and then to the Gentiles. I preached that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. That is why some Jews seized me in temple courts and tried to kill me. But God has helped me to this very day, so I stand here and testify to a small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Messiah would suffer and the first to rise from the dead would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. Paul speaks of his faithfulness to his experience, not only of his faithfulness but of God helping him through his journey. He speaks of the risen Jesus having a profound effect in his life where it actually changed him completely. And now at this point, the governor Festus, uh, in verse 24, at this point, Festus interrupts Paul's defence. You're out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. Literally being accused of having mental health issues for his belief. He's being told, you're driven insane. You've, you've studied this so much that it's actually fried your brain. <laughs> but Paul simply states from 25 to 27, I'm not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I'm saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things and I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was done not in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. He simply states to King Agrippa, who is a Jew, you, you, you know the evidence of the law. You know what the, what the prophets say. And he goes, I know you believe this. I know you do. And he gets a bit agitated. Then Agrippa said to Paul, Do you think that, it, 
that in such a short time you can persuade me to become a Christian? He's agitated. He feels a, a push of you know, disbelief on him. But, Paul, but Paul's response in verse 29 is, Paul replied, a short time, a short time all along, I pray that God, that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, except for these chains. Paul's response isn't a, an argument back to that in a hostile way. But he wasn't just addressing the king there. He knew there were others there too. And then the king rose, and with him the governor and Bernice, and those sitting with them. After they had left the room, they began to say to one another, This man is not doing anything that deserves death or imprisonment. Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he didn't appeal to Caesar. In his previous trial, Paul appealed to Caesar, and under Roman law, that process had to happen. So they couldn't just let him go, even though they saw that he was, um, that he was not guilty. So we see that Paul's defence is not necessarily academic. We know that in other parts of Scripture, Paul, Paul does enter into philosophical debates uh, in public. He, um, he's not shy to have uh, an academic discussion. But he's in prison now. And instead of giving an academic response, he gives a testimony about his life. So when we look at his story, if we break it down, he puts forward his past, which is academic, and he shows that he has an ability to think things through. He wasn't just easily led. He wasn't just quickly um, led by, uh, by nonsense. Because even after his conversion, he, he sought... Uh, confirmation about this. He hated Christians. was totally against this, this movement. But it's this encounter with Christ that, that changes his life. And his life after is about succumbing to the Lordship of Jesus. And his story becomes of one of how Jesus changed his life and can do the same for everyone else. So we can be trained as much as we want. And I don't in any way discourage that. But evangelism does not have to be as complicated as we make it. Think about the poorest people in countries where they don't have schooling and they still come to faith. And all they have to rely on is this encounter with Jesus. They have a story to tell, not from an academic perspective, but from true experience. There's one apologist who I really like. He usually gives a bit of his testimony when he has a debate. And the most interesting part is the feedback he gets is people don't care so much about his, his, his arguments. They actually care more about how they see the reality of his belief, of what it looks like in his life. So we all have a story to tell. Jesus wants our story to be about him. Why? Why is that so important? What does it matter if Jesus is in my, is in my life or, or is part of my story? Well, the human story 
in general is one of sin. It's one of disconnect from God. And the only way to God and redemption was through Jesus. The resurrection in, is a testament to the hope that we have to God. First, we need to make Jesus the centre of our story. So the question I have to ask, has, has Jesus affected your story? Most in his church would probably say yes. And most could probably pinpoint when that was or how that happens regularly. Now, belonging to church and doing religious acts doesn't signify your Christianity. It's only an encounter with God. It's only an encounter with Christ that shows that you identify with him. Now, now Paul had a very significant and dramatic encounter. My encounter with Jesus, I would argue, was not as dramatic. I simply was told the message. I could recognise that what the Bible said was what I saw with humanity and I saw it to be true. I recognised that I wanted to be closer to God and have a relationship with him, but I I had a problem to overcome and that was my sin. The only way I could do this was to ask for forgiveness and encounter Jesus. And I encountered Jesus through faith. I had no visions. I had no supernatural event to lead me to my belief. I simply found the information put forward to be true. And this became my story. The most most amazing part of this is I could actually see God alter my life. I could speak to how God was constantly working in me. And the more amazing part is what validates my belief is not only the word of God, but the millions of people who have the same belief as me, who tell their stories and testify of their encounter with Jesus. Their witness through the Spirit testifies to me that my belief is true. The testimonies of others encountered with Christ is a powerful witness to who Jesus is and of him being alive today. So as we, be, as we began today, we started off with talking a little about the resurrection of Jesus and how significant this event was. The early Christians proclaimed this around the world. And it would have sounded absolutely insane in that day as it does today. Imagine going to foreign lands who have no idea of who this Jesus was Palestine was such a tiny dot on the map of the world at that time. And yet people are talking about there was a guy there. He had a profound effect on our society. He died, but he's back. The early Christians and the apostles had a testimony to tell and that they encountered the risen God. And many came to believe and know this as truth because of people's witness to this. Now in John 20, 29, Jesus says to him, speaking to Thomas, you have believed because you have seen me, but blessed are those who have not seen me and yet come to believe. 
your story of your encounter with Christ is a testament to his resurrection. Because if the resurrection was not true, you would not be sitting here today. Your story of how you came to believe in Jesus, if, no matter how insignificant you might feel, because there's a lot of, there's a lot of dramatic stories of people's um, adversity in their lives and how they came to God. And, and we, we tend to look at these and go, wow, and, and they are pretty incredible. But your story is just as incredible if you've just heard the information and come to believe. Don't count that as nothing. If we cheapen our own story, we cheapen the grace that God has done in our lives. So we all have a story to tell. And that story is important. So my question to you as I leave here this morning is, what is your story? May the Lord bless his word.